you know, I think places like the White House, it reveals who you are. For some, it's a good thing. Some people, it's a bad thing. Good evening. Just moments ago, I spoke with George W. Bush and congratulated him on becoming the 43rd president of the United States. And I promised him that I wouldn't call him back this time. 37 of the most unprecedented days in American history. This has been an extraordinary election. But in one of God's unforeseen paths, this belatedly broken impasse can point us all to a new common ground for its very closeness can serve to remind us that we are one people with a shared history and a shared destiny. One Supreme Court decision. Indeed, that history gives us many examples of contests as hotly debated as fiercely fought with their own challenges to the popular will. Other disputes have dragged on for weeks before reaching resolution. And each time, both the victor and the vanquished have accepted the result peacefully and in a spirit of reconciliation. So let it be with us. And then, in a moment, it was all over. This is Election 2000 Over Time. I'm your host, Emma Sislowski. Throughout this podcast, we reference photos taken by Callie Shell, Al Gore's official White House photographer, and David Kennerly, the photographer with the Bush-Cheney team. You can view their photos while you listen by going to cnn.com slash election2000. That's 2000 and click episode four. Or just click the link in the description for this episode in your podcast app. Episode four, shake the soul and let the glory out. It's December 13th, 2000, at the Naval Observatory, and Al Gore is getting ready to make his concession speech. Surrounded by his family and campaign staff, he appears stoic and resigned. Callie Shell captures the moment. Gore buttoning his suit jacket, straightening his tie, his eyes focused on nothing in particular. He is a man lost in thought. As for what I'll do next, I don't know the answer to that one yet. Like many of you, I'm looking forward to spending the holidays with family and old friends. I know I'll spend time in Tennessee and mend some fences, literally and figuratively. Some have asked whether I have any regrets, and I do have one regret, that I didn't get the chance to stay and fight for the American people over the next four years. Then, later that night, after Gore's campaign for the presidency of the United States is officially over, there's a party. And it just happened that at the White House, there was a big concert to raise funds for Thelonious Monk Institute. So they invited everyone's staff to come and have a party because there was a tent up. So they told him. And they right. told John Bon Jovi had been campaigning on the road with him. And so they invited one person or another person. So by the end of the night, it's like Stevie Wonder, John Bon Jovi. All, all these musicians came, and this is Gore on the floor high-fiving 
a very important photographer, my husband, Vince, Vince and Jamie's here. I see him, okay. <laughs> he was like... Like in the italic section Yeah, he's just like, <laughs> yeah, giving him the, the high five and the, like... That's funny. It's just like, That's yeah. Funny. From here, Gore's role in this chapter of American history begins to recede, and President-elect Bush now stands in the spotlight alone. Since announcing his candidacy, it has been a long road for Bush to reach this moment, a moment that includes a legacy few men have ever known. He's the son of a man who was also president of the United States. Anytime I could get a picture with uh, Bush Sr. and Jr. together, um, that was a good deal because the only time in American history where a father and son had become president and both had become president was John Adams and John Quincy Adams. I, I think as head of the family, I think um, George Herbert Walker Bush is a more formal guy. And, um, you know, it's a different generation. Uh, George W. is my generation, a little more devil-may-care attitude. Uh, I've always liked W.'s uh, sense of humor, though. I, I, I personally like him a lot. I mean, he's easy to get along with. He's a funny guy. He's very smart. Uh, but he was like kind of the bad boy kid. And um, uh, but in his own words, I mean, he, he, he was kind of an unruly youth. <laughs> so I, mean, I don't know his whole history, but uh, they just seemed like uh, his dad seemed like a more conservative guy in terms of the way he behaved. And um, and George W. was like uh, always there with a joke. Um, he, he's got nicknames for people. I mean, they're totally different people. Uh, but they're tight. I mean, they're very tight. I'm not sure what attracted George W. to the presidency. I've always had the sense that he kind of had something to prove to his dad. Um, and I, I, I know for sure he really thought he would be the right man for the job at the time he ran, particularly when it came to Al Gore. I think he was not a big fan of Al Gore's. Uh, he was not a big fan of the Clintons. Um, and I think he thought it was time for a Republican president with more conservative views, et cetera, et cetera. On December 19th, 2000, George W. Bush makes his first visit to the White House as president-elect. David is one of several photographers in the room. So this is their first meeting, President-elect and President uh, Clinton. And it was, my understanding is that Clinton and Bush get along really well, actually. I know Mrs. Bush, uh, Barbara Bush, George W.'s uh, mother, uh, is very fond of Bill Clinton and refers to him as their son, who's the black sheep of the family jokingly and uh but no they they get along fine i've been at some events where the two of them appeared together and uh kind of off the record events uh and they're very funny together and on one occasion george bush referred to arkansas as a pissant state <laughs> 
when they're having this conversation, it was really funny. I mean, it was intended to be funny. It was funny. And uh, and Clinton, without missing a beat, says, uh, yeah, but uh, we're the ones sending all the water down to you guys. <laughs> so it, it was like uh, there's a lot of play back and forth with, with the two of them, which is, uh, was, is great. On that same snowy December day, Bush and Gore finally have their long-awaited one-on-one meeting. This is at the Naval Observatory, and this is the day that Bush came after the count was over and it was official that that Bush was going to be he the came president. Up and, uh, made he a came. Ago. The two men are standing outside, shaking hands, while Bush's Secret Service detail waits by his limousine. And it was chilly. And so was the reception. And uh, it was my understanding that meeting didn't last very long. And it was pretty, pretty frigid uh, situation in all regards. About a month later, the two men meet again. This time, it's January 20th, 2001, Inauguration Day. Callie and David are both in the room, along with several other photographers. But their deep knowledge of Gore and Bush, respectively, gives them the ability to read between the lines and capture the moment in a way others simply cannot. So here, for me, I'm looking at body language, expressions, to try to convey what the feeling was between the two men. Um, This is more representative of what the... um, chemistry was like between the two of them. They're being cordial, but if you look at this photograph of, of Bush and Gore closely, they're not looking at each other. They're being polite, but Gore's kind of looking down, listening. Bush is talking and kind of looking past. So they're, do you know what I mean? How sometimes you're there in the moment, but you're just trying to get through the moment. I felt that that's right. what that room was. And then George W. Bush takes the oath of office and becomes the next president of the United States. Please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, George Walker Bush, do solemnly swear. I, George Walker Bush, do solemnly swear. That I will faithfully execute the office of president of the United States. That I will faithfully execute the office of president of the United States. And will to the best of my ability. And will to the best of my ability. Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. So help me God. Congratulations. Okay, so then the Gores motorcade to Tipper's childhood house that she grew up in, in Arlington. So I think for him, she wanted the White House for him, but I think there was a part of her that was like, we get to go have our own life. And they are walking in um, for the first time after he is no longer vice president. In the photo, Gore's back is to the camera, and he is walking toward the front door of the house. In the yard, there are signs that read, Welcome Home, Gore's. Looking at the photo, you can feel the quiet solitude, the cold January air. For Gore, this winding cobblestone walkway is where his road to the White House comes to an end. 
I've seen America in this campaign, and I like what I see. It's worth fighting for, and that's a fight I'll never stop. I do believe, as my father once said, that no matter how hard the loss, defeat may serve as well as victory to shake the soul and let the glory out. So for me, this campaign ends as it began, with the love of Tipper and our family, with faith in God and in the country I have been so proud to serve, from Vietnam to the Vice Presidency. After the break, we examine the 2000 election more closely and explore what steps can be taken to ensure these 37 unprecedented days never happen again. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back to Election 2000 Over Time. I'm your host, Emma Sislowski. Two hundred years from now, when future Americans study this presidential election, let them learn that Americans did everything they could to ensure that all citizens who voted had their votes counted. Let them learn that democracy was ultimately placed ahead of partisan politics in resolving a contested election. Let them learn that we were indeed a country of laws. But was that really true? Were all the votes counted? And if the Supreme Court hadn't ruled in a 5-4 decision to halt the manual recounts, would Bush still have been the 43rd president of the United States? In the wake of the court's decision, these questions were asked by voters, politicians, and journalists, and some even attempted to answer them. You, uh, you went uh, to the Miami Herald, covered two huge stories down there in a, in a brief tenure down there, Elian. Gonzalez uh, and the recount committed a ton of your paper's resources to trying to find out who actually won Florida in 2000 in the Gore-Bush race. That's David Axelrod, former senior advisor to President Obama and host of the Axe Files podcast. 
In a recent interview, David spoke with Marty Barron, executive editor of The Washington Post. Marty was at the Miami Herald during the 2000 election. That was when I became editor of the Miami Herald in 2000, and uh, when the U.S. Supreme Court had determined that there would be no recount, we decided to go ahead and conduct a recount ourselves, uh, working with a major accounting firm. And we went to every single county, all of the 67 counties in Florida, and under the Florida, an expansive public records law in Florida, thankfully, uh, was available. We could look at, examine every single ballot, and we examined every single ballot. And uh, we concluded uh, that uh, Bush won that election, uh, and had there been a recount, he would have won that election. The Miami Herald wasn't the only news outlet investigating the recount. At the same time, the New York Times and the Washington Post and the networks and the Associated Press were doing uh, their own recount, and they came to the same conclusion. Investigative journalism like this helped the country get answers providing closure to a process the Supreme Court had so abruptly brought to an end. But it didn't address the underlying question. How do we ensure our country doesn't make the same mistake? That the votes cast in future elections are clear enough to be counted. Paper ballots, the kind that created so much chaos in Florida, have a fundamental flaw. For various reasons, from machines that aren't properly maintained to voter confusion surrounding the layout of the ballot, paper ballots run the risk of incorrectly recording the voters' intent, and often without their knowledge. In response, Congress enacted the Help America Vote Act in 2002 to increase voter accessibility and improve voting systems across the country. This legislation led several states to adopt modernized systems known as DREs, or Direct Recording Electronic Voting Machines, where voters cast their ballots on computers with touchscreens. Going fully electronic leaves a lot less room for ambiguity, but can create other unforeseen consequences. Any type of electronic system, they're vulnerable. Vladimir Putin's hackers could wreak havoc on Election Day in America. 21 states, the Russians attempted to hack into their electoral system. Targeted, targeted, you said, at certain precincts. Then the elections themselves are called into question, and that seeds chaos in American politics. So what's the solution? Paper ballots are unreliable, while electronic voting systems are vulnerable to hackers. Marion Schneider, the president of Verified Voting, a nonprofit that works toward more verifiable election results, thinks we should treat the polls like the criminal justice system, enacting a, quote, secure chain of custody with physical evidence. For example, voters could use an electronic machine to cast their votes, but on their way out of the booth, they receive a printout with proof of the vote they just cast. It's like a receipt. It can't be misinterpreted or meddled with. There's one other point that often comes up when discussing the 2000 election and the recount that followed. The Electoral College versus the popular vote. It's a difficult thing for some Americans to reconcile with. How can the candidate with fewer votes earn the highest office in the nation? We posed this question to the editor-at-large for CNN Politics, Chris Saliza, and here's what he had to say. Let me make two points first. The debate over whether to get rid of the Electoral College is about 200 years old, and it's only getting hotter. 
The Electoral College was established in 1787 at the Constitutional Convention, but there have been five times in which the popular vote winner did not win the presidency. They won the popular vote, but lost the Electoral College. Now, the problem, the reason you're going to keep hearing about this is two of those five times happened in the last 18 years. Uh, In 2016, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by 2.9 million over Donald Trump, but lost the Electoral College 304 to 227. 16 years before that, Al Gore, a Democrat, won the popular vote over George W. Bush, but lost the Electoral College thanks to a very narrow victory for George W. Bush in Florida. So this isn't going away, but neither, I think, is the Electoral College. It was put into place, as I mentioned, in 1787, the Constitutional Convention, and the goal was to allow people to vote for a slate of electors, but then to give those electors the chance to go against that vote if they thought it was the right thing to do for the country. As a point of fact, now uh, there are a few faithless electors who don't vote for who their state or district went for, but by and large, most simply do. This, I think, can lead people to think this is not terribly democratic. And you can make the argument it isn't, but I'll make it just real politique political argument, which is... It's not going away, and I'll tell you why. It's in the Constitution, and it's very, very hard to amend. You know how you change the Constitution via Congress? You need a two-thirds supermajority vote in both the House and Senate. If that happens, then it goes to each of the states where you need 38 out of the 50 states to ratify that constitutional amendment. We can't get two-thirds of Congress to agree on anything, much less changing the Electoral College getting rid of it so that the popular vote is the way in which we choose presidents. So, yes, there is an argument for getting rid of the Electoral College. You could argue it's a more democratic system to simply have the popular vote decide it. But no, the Electoral College isn't going anywhere. It's been here since 1787, and my guess is in 2087, we'll still be having this argument, but the Electoral College will still be the way that we choose our president. From the ballot box to the Electoral College, it's an imperfect system. But it matters that we at least try to get it right. Try to count every vote. Try to protect this fundamental democratic right from interference or theft. And that when the system goes awry, we look back and examine what went wrong frame by frame. For more from the decade that followed this pivotal election, go to cnn.com slash 2000s. If you liked this episode, head over to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app and subscribe and leave us a rating or a review while you're there. Election 2000 Overtime was produced by Vanessa Gonzalez-Block and Amy Eason with help from Haley Drasnan and Prem Tucker and with sound design by me. Special thanks to Damian Prado, Stephanie Carday, Chris Saliza, and David Axelrod and his team at the University of Chicago Institute of Politics. We had additional production support from Paige Ellerson, Ariel Sachs, Alex Rosen, Stephen Sevilla, Colin Daly, 
Nithya Chambers, and Ed O'Keefe. And finally, a huge thank you to Callie Shell and David Hume Kennerly for being our guides through 37 of the most unprecedented days in American history. I'm your host, Emma Soslowski. But the, the most time I spent with him was, uh, was when he was governor in 1999, before he announced he was running. I went down to Austin to do a photograph, spent some behind-the-scenes time with him. In fact, I remember I was right outside of his office, and he heard me talking to uh, Karen Hughes, and I heard this voice. says, Kennerly, get your ass in here. <laughs> and so I go in. He says, oh, how do you think I'm doing? And I said, without thinking, I said, well, so far you haven't done sh <laughs> So right after I said it, I thought, oh, I wish I hadn't said it. And then he started laughing. He said, you're right, you're right. I haven't done yet, but I'm gonna. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep Next Level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.